today's Taiwan Insider, we have a Washington insider. That is right, and he'll be telling us how he thinks Joe Biden will deal with China and Taiwan. I'm Natalie So, and I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's start off with the stories on our radar. The Air Force has grounded its fleet of F-16s. That's after an F-16 went missing off Taiwan's east coast during an exercise Tuesday night. Investigators have ruled out mechanical failure and suspect the pilot may have sent the plane into an abrupt 7,000-foot drop due to spatial disorientation. Economics Minister Wang Meihua is set to meet with representatives from seven major industries that could be hit by the recent formation of the RCEP, the world's largest free trade agreement. Wang plans to meet this Sunday with representatives from industries including steel, machinery, and textiles. The National Communications Commission has unanimously decided not to renew the license for CTI News. The commission's chair says the channel has led Taiwan's cable networks in spreading disinformation and violating rules. The decision has been controversial. While some say the station is a source of Chinese propaganda, others worry about what the station's closure means for press freedom. Starting in December, everyone coming to Taiwan, including Taiwanese citizens, will have to present a negative COVID-19 test. Authorities say that's in anticipation of a wave of new cases in the fall and winter. Also starting December 1st, masks will be required in most indoor public venues, with fines of more than 100 U.S. dollars for non-compliance. And under the radar this week is the decision of an entire town in western Taiwan to go vegetarian for a week. Locals hope giving up meat will help a local temple's prayers for an early end to the COVID-19 pandemic win the support of the gods. U.S.-Taiwan ties have actually improved a lot in the last four years of the President Trump administration in the U.S. That's right. Taiwan is very happy about that. But now they're nervous because Joe Biden is elected. They don't know what to expect. Now, we've actually talked with a lot of different analysts to see what they have to say about the next four years. But we wanted to talk to someone who is a Washington insider. And you actually did that recently. That's right. I spoke with a former Pentagon official who served during the Obama administration. He was a top official in charge of Asia policy. And he knows a lot of people on the Biden team. Derek Mitchell is currently the president of the National Democratic Institute. And he gave us some insight into what their team is thinking about Taiwan and China. Well, first, thank you again for for uh, inviting me on. Uh, I don't represent the Biden administration. I can't speak for what they're going to do. I'm sure they're putting together their plans right now. But I do know the folks that are are leading the effort on Asia, and I can say with confidence that um, that they're very clear eyed about the issue of uh, Asia and particularly about the China challenge. I think there is not entirely a discomfort with the hardening of that the attitude of of the Trump administration. I, mean, I think they will uh, moderate the tone a bit um, and look more to work with allies. Well, what about Taiwan? How do you think the Biden administration will um, deal with its relations with Taiwan? Taiwan is a perfect example of uh, a place that is consistent in, in, with the values of the United States and the values of a more secure and stable world. Taiwan as a beacon of democracy in Asia, uh, as a strong society, as a net uh, grantor of public goods and how uh, Taiwan has dealt with COVID, how it's not only dealt with it at home, but also helped others in exporting masks and other values. Taiwan is a success story, and I know the Biden administration recognizes that, and that the protection of what makes Taiwan great 
is very important, but not just as a factor. I think this is very important, not seeing it simply through the lens of China, mm. uh, which is a traditional way that I think even the Trump administration has done. It sees it just simply through the lens of a China challenge. Taiwan in its own right stands on its own for what it contributes to the world and and the success that it is. And I think the, the Biden administration will recognize that and seek to find ways to bring to showcase that and to bring Taiwan out and try to help them have greater standing and greater provision of, of those public goods to the international community. So we've seen a lot of uh, uh, increase in um, support for Taiwan in the U.S. Congress and, of course, throughout um, the Trump administration. Do you see this continuing, the, the strength of the ties between U.S. and Taiwan in the Biden administration? I do. I very much do. I think there is a bipartisan consensus on on Taiwan, uh, on in Congress, as you say. Um, it runs from left to right. I mean, far left, far. I mean, all the whole gamut. Because Taiwan is an obvious good. It's an obvious positive. Um, so I think there will continue to be strong support and strong oversight of the executive. Remember, in the United States, the Congress, they were the ones that passed the Taiwan Relations Act. They have uh, paid special attention. To Taiwan for, I could say, 70 years, but certainly in the last uh, 40 years or so. So if the administration strays a little bit, there is always Congress that will oversee and say, you know, we want to make sure that Taiwan is taken care of. How do you see the Biden administration um, in the U.S.-China tech war? How do you think he's going to deal with that? I think that's a very important component of this challenge. And there are people I know going into this administration, I expect to go into the administration, who recognize that the information war, which is part of the tech war, uh, that the integrity of information, the importance of an open um, uh, space for for free expression, um, to be uh, not to be subject to overweening surveillance, the kind of Orwellian state that that China is developing internally um, in its society is is being exported, and it's very important for all of us that that not be the norm for the international society and also for for uh, for nations individually. I think also that the value chain, the fact that uh, microchips and things and technologies of the future, 5G, Huawei, or the chips that Taiwan produces. And all of this is very, very critical for future security of the world. And this is a, an area where Taiwan has been brilliant and has enormous amount to offer. Uh, the civic tech community and what um, Audrey Tong and the GovZero people, uh, and the volunteers, citizens of, of Taiwan, frankly, you have been a model for the United States as we deal with our own problems of our elections and our democracy. What we see your citizens have done and how you think about this is, is inspiring, to be honest. And Derek, it is good to talk to you because, you know, after the U.S. election, people in Taiwan are a bit nervous about, you know, the incoming uh, president. They don't know if U.S. Taiwan ties are going to change or not. Um, what is your take? Do you think that they'll continue to go strong or they, they may change in some way? I've watched some of the, the commentary from Taiwan and <laughs> the nervousness. And right. I have to say, you, you, you notice that. But I, look, Democrats, I find, they, they sometimes get a bad rap. <laughs> strong enough on certain things. And, you know, so in Taiwan or in Japan, there can be, a, or elsewhere in Asia, there's a little nervousness. Yeah, I don't think we mean it personally. I think that um, just yeah. there have been some... Uh, High-profile Republicans have been very staunch supporters of Taiwan, so people notice that. 
Nothing against right. the Democrats, I think. <laughs> no, I know. I know. And I don't take it personally, but I do notice it's about that. But no, I think, I, look, I, I feel very strongly that there is uh, going to be um, a strong commitment, an equal commitment, an enhanced commitment to Asia specifically. Um, I'm very confident that a Biden administration is going to be very strongly focused and strong generally in Asia and be, as I said, clear-eyed about the challenge from China, as well as the, the desire, and I think it's good for Taiwan, there not be blind hostility between the United States and China. Um, that doesn't help Taiwan. Uh, right. We shouldn't be fighting. That's true. Makes us nervous. Because that can also incite China to do things because they have to pound their chest and create tensions for Taiwan. So I think what we need to do is be in very close touch with the government in, in Taipei, the understanding of the position, the sensitive position of Taiwan, um, and not do anything to make it harder on you, simply because we want to pound our chest and demonstrate we're tough on China. Uh, I think we can be, we can walk and chew gum, be tough on the China challenge, be stalwart in our values and our commitments, but also recognize that our partners have interests as well, and we should be sensitive to those. And I really feel strongly that uh, the people that will be in a Biden administration will be sensitive to that. Now, usually we hear about Republicans talking about Taiwan, China, the United States. Uh, Derek Mitchell is actually a Democrat. Uh, right. What did you think about your interview with him? Well, it was great to see that um, as a top Democrat, a high profile uh, former Pentagon official, that he was very positive about future U.S.-Taiwan ties under the Biden administration. And um, also, he's very positive about Taiwan. He was gushing about Taiwan, you know, how we handle the pandemic and how we deal with disinformation. His institute actually did a documentary, a short documentary this year um, that was released right after our elections about how we fought disinformation from China. That's Taiwan fighting disinformation That's from right. China. That's right. I think the documentary is called A Canary in the Digital Coal Mine, right? That's right. So Taiwan is the canary? That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have a link to that and also to Natalie's full interview with Derek Mitchell in the show notes below. In a previous episode of Taiwan Insider, Andrew Ryan broke down political leanings of Taiwan's biggest media outlets. Today, our story will focus on one of those outlets, the TV station on the far right, CTI News. CTI is on the blue end of the spectrum. That means it supports the opposition KMT. But notice it also has a red star. That's because CTI is pro-China. CTI is owned by the Wang Wang Group, which also owns the China Times newspaper. The chairman of Wang Wang is Tsai Yanming, a businessman who's very politically active and advocates for China-Taiwan unification. CTI was criticized during Taiwan's presidential election for giving disproportionate coverage to the KMT candidate Han Guoyu. Taiwan's National Communications Commission says CTI dedicated as much as 70% of its airtime to the pro-China candidate. CTI's coverage on Han Guori wasn't the only thing that NCC took issue with. In July 2019, it fined CTI 51,000 US dollars for disseminating fake news and not having proper fact-checking measures in place. In recent months, CTI has been in the spotlight because its broadcasting license is set to expire on December 11th. That meant the company needed to renew its license with the NCC. 
In the past, renewing a license was a matter of doing paperwork. However, for the first time ever, the NCC held a public hearing for whether or not to renew CTI's license. On Wednesday, the NCC announced that its seven commissioners voted unanimously not to renew CTI's license. The NCC said that CTI had a poor record during its last license period. CTI was responsible for more than 30% of all the complaints it received for television channels. It went on to say that CTI infringed on the NCC's rules 25 times over the past six years, 23 of which resulted in fines totaling 400,000 US dollars. One of the reviewers pointed out that CTI does not have the mechanisms in place to reply to viewer complaints. Furthermore, CTI has been fined multiple times for the same offenses, meaning their internal review system is lacking. I think it's important to mention President Tsai Ing-wen's administration advocates Taiwanese sovereignty, so they're at odds with CTI. Many speculate that the NCC's decision to shut down CTI was political revenge. Immediately following the announcement, CTI News posted this to its Facebook page. It it says, the Thai administration has shut down CTI News. Freedom of press is dead. Rick Lin responded to that thread with, no need to worry that CTI is gone. We still have ET News and TVBS. If you're confused about that, then just go back to Andrew Ryan's chart. But some responses to Lin's comments say that both of those channels have switched allegiances. The KMT also responded on Facebook. It called on the NCC to give concrete reasons why it didn't renew the license for CTI News. It went on to say that the party is worried that CTI's closure is a slippery slope that will threaten freedom of press. The DPP said on Facebook that it will respect the decision of the NCC and emphasized that the commission is an independent government entity. The pro-independence Taiwan State Building Party posted this picture. Judging from the confetti, I'm sure you can tell how they feel about the issue. The NCC's announcement pretty much shuts down the station. But if we go back to Andrew Ryan's chart, we see that there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 other major news outlets in Taiwan. But let's be real, you only need one. Because that's where I am. Today's brain game is called Name That Sound. Oof. Now, Natalie and Leslie, yeah. as you know, I love to use my little recorder to collect interesting sounds from throughout Taiwan, and I use them to create radio shows. Right. So, in today's brain game, we're going to have you guess five different sounds. From Taiwan? Yes. These are sounds from Taiwan. Cool. And they are all transportation related. Oh, how fun. So on buzzer number one, we have Natalie So. Buzzer number two, we have Leslie Dow. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Five sounds. Uh, whoever guesses the most sounds uh, will, I guess, be crowned the the king or queen of transportation. <laughs> <laughs> the king of noise. Exciting. <laughs> All right, let's have a listen to our first sound. All right, Leslie, you got that first. MRT's doors closing. That is correct. That is the sound of the doors closing on the MRT to let Very you know the doors specific. are closing. I run after subway trains a lot, so I know <laughs> <that> now. <laughs> All right, and here is actually the full sound. We can hear the, the full sound of the doors closing. There's an initial oh. warning. Did you ever step in during that sound? Um, <laughs> I can't say because it's you're not supposed you're to not apologize <laughs> after. So I don't know if you heard the little kid in the background yeah. imitating it. Uh, that's <laughs> me actually. That was actually me. That wasn't. 
I was a little kid. No, that's I, I was, a good touch. Yeah, no, when, nice when I first touch. recorded, I was really upset because I thought he ruined the sound, but it actually adds to the sound. Sure. It really makes it quite cute. Okay. All right, sound number two. You ready? Is that your electric scooter? That is my electric scooter. That's right. Oh, <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's that, cool. That's the sound of a gogoro. Um, that's so cool. So it's got a lot of beeps on there. The, well, your gogoro is a gogoro three, right? Yes. Because they need to add in that sound because gogoros used to be too quiet and pedestrians couldn't hear them. Oh. My understanding is that actually all gogoros were too quiet. So they actually had to record the sound of the engine and then increase it by ten times as much. Wow. There you go. All right, here's cool. sound number three. Y'all ready? <laughs> yes. Ambient noise on a bus. No. No. Train? No. <laughs> <laughs> Want to hear again? Yeah. Sure. Listen carefully. Uh, you'll, at one point, you'll hear people screaming. Are you on an airplane going to Penghu? No. Malcolm Gondola? No. Oh. Oh. Okay, this. I'll tell you what it is. This is the ferry going from Danshui to Bali. Oh. oh. If you listen really carefully, you can it's hear a, a splash sound, and then you can hear people going, Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. That's cool. All right, two more shots. <laughs> Taipei Main Station announcements. Sorry, say it again. Taipei Main Station announcements? No. Train announcements. It is train announcements, but where is it? It's not oh, Taipei it's, Main. It's on a Hualien train, going to Hualien. Nope. It's going to Hualien, but it's not... Where is this? It's not on the train? Yes. Is that Taitong? That's right. That is the Taitong train station. Oh. And that's actually the Amis language. Oh. oh cool. It's one of the few places in the world where you can hear an indigenous Taiwanese language being broadcast over oh, the intercom. Cool. I thought it was Japanese at first. A lot yeah. of people think I it's Japanese. I thought Japanese. it was Japanese. Oh, that All is right. really nice. All right. Final sound. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie? That's the bus on the way to work. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic job. So those are all sounds of different forms of transportation. I'm sorry, Nally, this time it wasn't your day. I guess not. But uh, apparently you're a big uh, transportation writer. I think it's just noise. I, I, I bask in the noise. I absorb <laughs> the noise. Attention. I know about the noise. <laughs> and finally, our question of the day. What is your favorite mode of transportation in Taiwan? Leslie. Andrew, most reliable transportation system in Taiwan. Ma legs. <laughs> Been using them for That's 30 actually years. really good. Get you to A to B, reliable. Very good. Taipei is a walkable city. I mean, that's yeah, one of absolutely. the best. Um, I really like boats. Oh, very nice. Yes. You don't so, get boat sick. No, I think they're fun, and we have a little boat we go on sometimes. Sailboat. Very nice. Excellent. You ready for mine? Yes. All right. Oh, the number eleven bus. So specific. Goes to your home. Well, actually, no. In Chinese, we say "shi yi hao gong uh, gong chen," so it's the same, same. as. Oh. Oh. 
<laughs> walking on two legs, right? You're the number more 11. Poetic. Look at that. Yeah. So there you have it, our favorite modes of transportation. We want to thank you for joining us for this edition of Taiwan Insider. Be sure to connect with us on all the social media, including Twitter at Taiwan Insider. That's right. And if you like our show, subscribe and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao, and I'm Andrew Ryan. Have a great week. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. I'm here with Derek Mitchell, who is the president of the National Democratic Institute based in Washington, D.C., who's also in the Obama administration, a top Asia security official at the Department of Defense. So, uh, Derek, it's great to be able to speak with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, Derek, you know, we here in Taiwan are very curious about um, what the incoming Joe Biden administration Asia policy is going to look like. And I know that you're an expert um, in Asia policy. What can you tell us about what you think of how Joe Biden will deal with China and, and Taiwan? Well, first, thank you again for, for uh, inviting me on. Uh, I don't represent the Biden administration. I can't speak for what they're going to do. I'm sure they're putting together their plans right now. But I do know the folks that are, are leading the effort on Asia. And I can say with confidence that, um, that they're very clear-eyed about the issue of uh, Asia and particularly about the China challenge. Uh, they recognize that China has a competitive attitude towards the United States uh, and that the, that competition, that competitive attitude creates enormous challenges and very comprehensive challenges in terms of di diplomacy, in terms of economics, in terms of technology, in terms of military. So I think they're gonna look at this um, and address each in turn um, I think there is not entirely a discomfort with the hardening of that, the attitude of, of the Trump administration, but I think they will uh, moderate the tone a bit um, and look more to work with allies and not simply to work alone. I think very important theme we hear from the Biden folks is that um, the strength of American power globally, our strength and our advantage is that we have friends and allies. And what we want to do is leverage that in order to take on this comprehensive challenge that we see from China. And the final element of that is they're not going to, um, to uh, dismiss the notion of cooperation. There are things like climate change and health issues and, uh, and terrorism and things like that that every country um, has interest to suppress. And so even as Mike Pompeo talks about avoiding blind engagement, I think there will be avoidance of blind engagement, but likewise, I think there'll be avoidance of blind hostility. But again, always with a very clear-eyed sense that, um, you know, that China is a very severe and serious challenge to the interests of the United States in Asia and elsewhere around the world. So do you think that it will be different than it was uh, when Obama was in power? Because China has changed. Yeah, I think there's a, a general recognition that the world has changed in four years. Just since 2016, there are very different uh, conditions around the world. You simply can't turn back the clock to, to things before. Uh, the Obama administration I mean, was very active in building deeper partnerships in Asia. I mean, they were the first administration to have a summit with ASEAN, and, and they engaged in Asia very actively. But I think on China, there will be a, a, a reassessment on some of the more um, 
cooperative elements and whether that's really where the emphasis ought to be or focus more on what China has been very clear about, which is their competitive interest towards the United States uh, and the ways that China is very actively, if quietly, trying to undermine America's position around the world. Hmm. Well, what about- And not just, I say, if I can just say, not just America's position, but also the norms and standards, uh, the values that America cares about around the world, like democracy and like openness and like freedom. And China's doing things that are very carefully about their own interest, but not in the general interest. And I think uh, the U.S. is more alert to this and will be engaging on that front as well. Hmm. Well, what about Taiwan? How do you think the Biden administration will um, deal with its relations with Taiwan? Well, Taiwan is, I mean, speaking, just extending on what I just said, Taiwan is a perfect example of uh, a place that is consistent with the values of the United States and the values of a more secure and stable world. Taiwan as a beacon of democracy in Asia, uh, as a strong society, as a net uh, grantor of public goods in how uh, Taiwan has dealt with COVID, how it's not only dealt with it at home, but also helped others and exporting masks and other values. Um, Taiwan is a success story. And um, I, I think that the Biden administration, I know the Biden administration recognizes that and that the protection of what makes Taiwan great is very important, but not just as a factor. I think this is very important, not seeing it simply through the lens of China, yeah. uh, which is a traditional way that I think even the Trump administration has done. It sees it just simply through the lens of a China challenge. Taiwan in its own right stands on its own for what it contributes to the world and, and the success that it is. And I think the, the Biden administration will recognize that and seek to find ways to bring, to showcase that and to bring Taiwan out and try to help them have greater standing and greater provision of, of those public goods to the international community. You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I am Natalie So. I'm speaking with Washington insider Derek Mitchell about how the Biden administration will deal with Taiwan and China. Now, Mitchell was a top Pentagon official on Asia policy during the Obama administration. He is currently the president of the National Democratic Institute. In just a moment, he'll be telling us why the U.S. Congress has grown in its support of Taiwan and if he thinks that will continue in the Biden administration. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Ini kemai bayuan nak kenatar tu lengau. 
the sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. I'm speaking with Derek Mitchell, the president of the National Democratic Institute. Mitchell is also a former top Pentagon official who was in charge of Asia policy during the Obama administration. He knows many of those leading Obama's Asia policy team. And he is giving us insight on how a Biden administration will deal with Taiwan and China. So we've seen a lot of uh, uh, increase in um, support for Taiwan in the U.S. Congress and, of course, throughout um, the Trump administration. Do you see this continuing, the, the strength of the ties between U.S. and Taiwan in the Biden administration? I do. I, do. I very much do. I think there is a bipartisan consensus on, on Taiwan uh, on, in Congress, as you say. Um, it runs from left to right. I mean, far left, far, I mean, all the whole gamut, because Taiwan is an obvious good. It's an obvious positive. Um, so I think there will continue to be strong support and strong oversight of the executive. Remember in the United States, the Congress, they were the ones that passed the Taiwan Relations Act. They have uh, paid special attention to Taiwan for, I could say, 70 years, but certainly in the last uh, 40 years or so. So if the administration strays a little bit, there is always Congress that will oversee and say, you know, we want to make sure that Taiwan is taken care of. So it's a very important co component of the mix in the United States. So there have been some uh, congressmen who have come up with acts like the uh, Taiwan Defense Act to get rid of strategic ambiguity. Now, what do you think about that? Do you think that the Biden administration um, will continue with strategic ambiguity about defending Taiwan or would they be stronger um, against uh, any threats from China? Well, I, I, I can't predict what they will do. Uh, strategic, strategic ambiguity, I think, to date has worked. I don't think there's any question. I don't think China has any question about America's commitment to the defense of Taiwan. Under the Taiwan Relations Act, the grave concern that any uh, violence, any aggressive act, uh, that's been stated by successive administrations um, about the importance of ensuring Taiwan's self-defense capabilities uh, and such. So I suspect that those commitments will are as strong as ever, that we will be demonstrating that um, in our military capabilities, in our statements, in our actions, uh, and that uh, the safety and security of Taiwan will be, uh, will be communicated very, very strongly and consistently to, to China. Do you think that there will be a continued sales of U.S. arms to Taiwan? Yes, again, that's that's something that's every administration and in the Obama administration was very strong on providing uh, weapons uh, necessary for self-defense. And I, I absolutely believe that that will continue. Yes. You think there will be a stronger uh, military presence of the U.S. In, in the South China Sea? Um, it depends how you you um, how you uh, define that. But yes, I do think that that was something that was discussed, certainly in my time when I was even in the Pentagon um, early in the, in the Obama administration, was a necessity of having a stronger visible presence in Asia and finding ways to have a more flexible presence, uh, to find places where you can put your, you know, run naval ships through to show that 
that China's growing power is not decisive and that America's commitment to the security of the region is strong as ever. And that gets harder and harder to recognize that as China's power grows. But we're going to need, again, the important part of this is we're going to need partners. The United States can't do this alone. So I think the Quad will be still engaged. And so working with Australia and Japan and India, thinking through how we can do this together um, and looking at Vietnam and their interest in, in securing uh, that area of the world in that area of Asia and South China Sea and demonstrating that China's uh, unilateral actions to change the status quo and to grab territory and to violate international law will not be accepted. And uh, you remember it was, it was during the Obama administration that the, uh, that the international court ruled on the South China Sea issues and that was supported strongly by the Obama administration. So um, Biden has said that he will uh, have allies working together to pressure China or have more leverage. How do you think that will affect China? Well, they're not going to like it. <laughs> they don't like uh, to have allies. And they've tried to, to uh, divide the alliances and they're going to try to, to find gaps uh, and try to use their power. I think they're much more um, comfortable using overt hard power or other coercive power than they might have been four years ago or eight years ago. Xi Jinping is not shy. So they will continue to, to pursue the Belt and Road Initiative. They'll continue to quietly tell countries in Asia that the United States is far away and we're on your border and you need to be careful about us and be careful, make your decisions wisely. They've been saying that for years and years. Um, and they will try to um, put the onus on the United States and make it look like we are the problem rather than our consistent policy. You know, we, we simply want a peaceful and stable and sovereign uh, Asia where all countries uh, are able to uh, have uh, control of their own futures and not be overrun by a, a hegemon. Uh, that's been our policy since the Cold War. Uh, so it's up to China how they want to handle that. That is Derek Mitchell, a Washington insider in the Obama administration. He was a top Pentagon official in charge of Asia security policy. He is currently the president of the National Democratic Institute. Next week, I'll continue to speak with him and he will tell us how he thinks the Biden administration will deal with the U.S.-China tech war and Taiwan's role. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste and the destination 1961.
For decades, anyone in Taiwan who wanted to learn English had only one place to turn. For whole generations of people here, the works of author Ke Qihua were trusty friends, guiding the way through the tangled world of English grammar. It is for these bestsellers, published starting around 1960, that many Taiwanese people today remember Ke best. But Ke was a man of staggering talent, whose literary output included books in multiple languages, novels, and poetry. He was also a man whose life was full of tragedy. As a suspected dissident, living under Taiwan's 20th century dictatorship, he spent the prime of his life, around 17 years in total, imprisoned. His poetic attacks on the government and fight for Taiwan's dignity are also his legacy. Ke passed away in 2002, but his story is just as much the story of his wife, Tsai Ali. Now 86, she still remembers the joy they shared over their success as publishers, and she still remembers the heartbreak of running a business and raising a family alone after Ke was taken. This month, Ms. Tsai has agreed to share her memories with us, and today we present part two of her recollections. It was October 4th, 1961, in the southern city of Kaohsiung. Sales of Ke's books were booming, with many orders to fill before the day was through. Ms. Tsai says she was at the family's Kaohsiung home that day because she was unwell. It was her first day at home after a doctor had told her that her health problem was serious and she'd have to rest from her teaching job for a month. At three in the afternoon, Ke Qihua was feeling tired and went into his room for a nap, wearing only some light underclothes. Someone showed up outside their home looking for him. Ms. Tai went and got her husband up to answer the door. Come with us, the person said. Ms. Tai remembers trying to get some warmer clothes for him to wear, but she was told there was no need. She said if there was a problem, she'd go too. But she was rebuffed, and Ke Qihua was led away. She was getting more and more anxious when at around five or six, a few large men barged in and trashed the house, throwing things everywhere, opening drawers, and dumping their contents on the ground. Whenever they found a slip of paper, they'd hold it up to the light to make sure no code was written on it, before going back to their rampage. Miss Tai held her baby tight and stood with her two other children squeezed next to her. They waited in stunned silence, waiting to see what would happen next. The men eventually went away, leaving Miss Tai and the children dazed and unsure what to do. Miss Tai went to the neighbors, who had one of the few phones around. She reached her mother through another acquaintance with a phone. Her mother came quickly. They agreed it would be better if her mother took the youngest child. And now that it was past midnight, her mother took the child home, walking more than an hour. Miss Tsai went to the police station, but the police said they didn't know anything about it. And so, she waited for four months for any news of her husband. Eventually, she found out that he was being held up north in Taipei. 
Miss Tsai and her mother-in-law were brought into a room with a tape recorder. She says it was a giant bulky thing sitting on the table. She and her mother-in-law were told to give their messages to Ke Xihua. Certain that her husband would come home soon, Miss Tsai put on a brave face and said not to worry because she would take care of everything. Her mother-in-law, however, couldn't even make it past just saying Ke's name. So why had Ke Qihua been taken? The answer only came out later. It had all happened some time before, when Ke had eaten dinner with his younger brother and his younger brother's friends. Everyone knew that before his marriage, Ke Qihua had once been held on the penal colony at Green Island. The gathered friends were curious to know what it was like. Ke told them. Later, one of his brother's friends there at the dinner was caught sending a letter to Japan, describing in detail how dark and miserable times had gotten on Taiwan. Under interrogation, he'd blamed Ke Qihua for influencing him to write the letter. In this period, a few remarks to a distant acquaintance were all it took to get arrested. Miss Tsai was there the day that Ke Qihua was finally tried. His sentence? 12 years. The judge asked if anyone had anything to say. Miss Tsai recalls raising her hand, standing up and defending her husband. He's a good man, she said, who is so busy with his work that he has no time to foment trouble. I see, the judge said when she had finished. And that was it. Miss Tsai said she considered the fact that she was 28 and had three children, and she says that no one there who knew her husband could stop crying. Later, though, talking to those who knew about these things, she was surprised to be told that her husband's fellow prisoners would probably congratulate him and shake his hand. Why would they congratulate him, she asked. Well, it wasn't a death sentence. It was here that Miss Tsai picked herself up and decided to keep going. She knew that once her husband got out, his history in prison would close off many career paths. She had to make sure the publishing house they'd started together kept going for when he came back. On top of that, she was determined that all three of her children would have happy childhoods. Ke Qihua was shipped to a prison in Taidong in southeastern Taiwan. Miss Tsai was allowed one brief visit per month, but Taidong was far away and she was usually far too busy. Most of the time, the 150-character letter she was allowed per week had to suffice. She bought all the best things she could find and sent them in care packages, which she later learned her husband shared with the less fortunate inmates. And she sent books at her husband's request, from which he continued his writing. When her children asked, she told them their father was in America studying. Later, when the children found a letter with the prison's address on it, she told them that there just happened to be a place in America that was also called Taidong. Ms. Tsai's daughter memorized that address, and she later learned that her daughter had secretly sent a note to her father, asking him to come home. 
Eventually, the children stopped buying their mother's story. Eventually, one by one, they asked to see their father. And eventually, one by one, she took them. I'm sorry, is what he told his oldest son on their first visit in 10 years, as a prison official listened in. Inside the prison, Ko was regularly tormented by some of his fellow prisoners, with connections to the government and the military. Still, work on his English books continued, and he sent revisions and new drafts home. At one point, the government banned Ko's books, threatening the family's survival. Miss Tai says she simply took her husband's name off the books, until eventually, the government just forgot about its own ban. Even a contributor to a state newspaper sang the praises of Ko's books. People wrote letters crediting the books with good grades and test scores. Around 1969, Miss Tai says, more than 100,000 copies of Ko's books were sold each year, a huge print run for Taiwan at the time. In 1970, what had been a tough situation for the family got much worse. Next week, when Miss Tai joins us again, we'll hear why her husband was transferred once again to the prison colony on Green Island. And we'll also hear why even after his sentence was up, he wasn't free to go. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. Taiwan ties have actually improved a lot in the last four years of the President Trump administration in the U.S. That's right. Taiwan is very happy about that. But now they're nervous because Joe Biden is elected. They don't know what to expect. Now, we've actually talked with a lot of different analysts to see what they have to say about the next four years. But we wanted to talk to someone who is a Washington insider, and you actually did that recently. That's right. I spoke with a former Pentagon official who served during the Obama administration. He was a top official in charge of Asia policy, and he knows a lot of people on the Biden team. Derek Mitchell is currently the president of the National Democratic Institute, and he gave us some insight into what their team is thinking about Taiwan and China. Well, first, thank you again for for uh, inviting me on. Uh, I don't represent the Biden administration. I can't speak for what they're going to do. I'm sure they're putting together their plans right now. But I do know the folks that are are leading the effort on Asia, and I can say with confidence that um, that they're very clear eyed about the issue of uh, Asia and particularly about the China challenge. I think there is not entirely a discomfort with the hardening of that the attitude of of the Trump administration. But I think they will uh, moderate the tone a bit um, and look more to work with allies. Well, what about Taiwan? How do you think the Biden administration will um, deal with its relations with Taiwan? Taiwan is a perfect example of uh, a place that is consistent with the values of the United States and the values of a more secure and stable world. Taiwan as a beacon of democracy in Asia, uh, as a strong society, as a net uh, grantor of public goods and how uh, Taiwan has dealt with COVID, how it's not only dealt with it at home, but also helped others in exporting masks and other values. Taiwan is a success story, and I know the Biden administration recognizes that, and that the protection of what makes Taiwan great is very important, but not just as a factor. I think this is very important, not seeing it simply through the lens of China, 
mm. uh, which is a traditional way that I think even the Trump administration has done. Sees it just simply through the lens of a China challenge. Taiwan, in its own right, stands on its own for what it contributes to the world and and the success that it is. And I think the, the Biden administration will recognize that and seek to find ways to bring to showcase that and to bring Taiwan out and try to help them have greater standing and greater provision of, of those public goods to the international community. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In Southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kHz. In South Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.